Hello, and welcome to Faith, Fathers, and Families, where the focus of this family ministry is restoring a foundation of biblical truth and reclaiming biblical foundations for our lives. You can visit us on the web at www.faithfathersfamilies.org, where you can learn more about our ministry, send us a prayer request, or hear past recorded messages. And now, a biblical message from Joshua Hernandez, founder of Faith Fathers Families. Tonight, uh, we'll be speaking or reading out of the book of Mark, chapter 8, verse 34 through 38. Uh, Before I do, though, I do want to summarize a little bit of Mark in most of chapter 8. And we see all through Mark that Jesus is doing all these amazing things. He's teaching, he's leading, he's walking on water, he's healing people of their infirmities, he feeds 5,000 with just a small amount of food, later on he feeds 4,000 with a small amount of food. And then in chapter 8, verses 23, uh, excuse me, 27 through 33, um, Jesus asks a very important question of his disciples. In fact, it's so important, we should probably ask ourselves this question every day. Who do people say that I am? And you know, they say, oh, John the Baptist, or uh, Elijah, or just a great prophet. And then he rephrases the question to give it even more weight and says, but who do you say that I am? And you guys know the self-elected spokesperson, Peter, responds and says, well, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, but don't tell anybody. (laughs) Um, he, He continues to teach them and tells them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, and then he must be killed and on three days later rise again. If you think about that for a moment, you have these guys that were following Jesus for three years, seeing all the miracles he was doing, all the amazing things he was saying, all the teaching, all the building up, the edifying that he was doing. You know, he was the Christ, the Messiah, the king that was going to establish his rule over Israel forever. And at this time, you have Israel that's under the Roman rule and oppression. And then now he tells you that the king, the one you've anticipated, is going to die. Now, we know what happens next. Peter takes him aside and sternly rebukes him. And then again, Jesus, in his infinite grace and mercy, corrects him and calls his behavior for what it is. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the God's interest, but man's. That's pretty harsh, but he's teaching something very important. Anybody that opposes the Christ is essentially siding with the enemy. We have to understand that. We know this. Jesus says, you're either with me or against me. There is no fence riding in Christianity. That's my brother's favorite term. I like to ride the fence. It's either God or the God of heaven and earth or the God of this world. You can serve one master, right? One moment Peter's confessing the Christ, or Jesus as the Christ, the anticipated Messiah, and the next he's rebuking the Son of God. Because he has his heart set on man-centered interests, not God's. And this is the catalyst, I believe, leading up to the cost of discipleship in our passage, where Jesus helps us understand that following the leader, it's no longer child's play. It's a matter of life and death. Uh, So let's read. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, 
If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is a very, very packed passage of scripture, and we couldn't possibly get through all of it, but I did my best to draw out a few points that I think are helpful and and, uh, true to the scripture. And I would say that from verses 34 through 35, we can see that who you follow matters. Who you follow matters. You know, the word Jesus is using here uh, to deny oneself essentially means you have to utterly disown yourself. You no longer own yourself if you're following Jesus. That's also a similar term to bondservant when Paul and all the other apostles refer to themselves as bondservants. They are owned by Christ. They are his. The word follow carries the same connotation as disciple. So a disciple, we know, is somebody who follows another person's teaching, way of life, and submits him or herself to that particular teaching. You're learning, growing, molding all facets of your life around specific teaching by a person, you're essentially that person's disciple. So if you're following Jesus, you're a disciple of Jesus. And this is what Jesus means when he was saying, denying yourself and following him. When he called some of his disciples, they begin to follow him immediately. Following Christ means going where he goes, doing what he does, loving who he loves, and learning from him through humble obedience to his teaching and way of life. That's the goal, to be more Christ-like, following Christ. This is what following means in this context, and who you follow matters. All 12 apostles followed Christ. Everywhere after his death, resurrection, and ascension, they continued to follow. They literally followed him to the ends of the earth as they knew it. They followed him, they continued to preach, teach, exhort, and lead thousands to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They followed Christ until their death. They lost their life for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Now, I'm not saying that is what we have to do, but we must understand that there will come a time, and in some sense is already upon us in most places, where the Christ and his gospel will not be tolerated. And if we won't follow Christ now, we're not going to follow him then. Let's see if I can draw this out a bit more for you. Over the last half century, most of you are probably familiar, uh, there was a man that grew up in Lynn, Indiana. His name was Jim Jones. He amassed a small following there where he founded what he called the People's Christian Temple Church. After some issues and some local problems, he moved all his followers out to Ukiah, California. And he would stage these magnificent healings during his service and all these other things that would help people think that he was actually full of power, full of the Holy Spirit and that sort of thing. And after a couple years, his congregation grew to hundreds and hundreds of people. During one of his speaking engagements, he picks up the book, says, you see this book right here? He throws it. I'm talking, this is a big room like we're in now. Flies through the air hits the ground, starts surveying 
his audience in dead silence. And he says, did you see any lightning come out of the sky and strike me? No. You're going to help yourself or you're, going to help, or you're not going to get any help. There's only one hope of glory. That's within you. Nobody's going to come out of the sky. There's no heaven up there. We'll have to make heaven down here. And then he goes on to tell his followers, you have to believe in what you see. If you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. If you see me as your father, I'll be your father. And if you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. He even then goes on to say that if you see me as your God, I will be your God. Eventually, Jim moved his followers to a place in Guyana, Africa, which later came to be referred to as Jonestown, probably a term everybody's most familiar with. And there he orchestrated the mass suicide of over 900 souls. Jim Jones convinced his followers that he was their savior and God, and that life apart from him was not possible in the world, and it cost them their mortality. Who you follow matters. You know, apart from Jesus, there is no life. We must be willing to follow him at all costs. Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but taking or emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, went to the cross. To follow Jesus is to take up your cross and deny yourself. And I would just say, who are you following? Yourself, your political party, your paycheck, some of us follow your spouse, or Jesus. Who you follow matters. Secondly, I would say that from verses 36 through 37, we could see that who you invest in matters. And it says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, in Philippians 3, Paul reminds us that he had gained the world prior to his conversion. He says that as to the flesh, he had the most confidence. He was circumcised on the eighth day, nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is the law, blameless. He had power, prestige, a prominent position. And he had invested all his time into ensuring that all that remained. But then he says, after conversion, of what advantage is this over knowing Christ? Later in the book of Philippians chapter 3, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Who you invest in matters. Our lives can become so materialistic that we can no longer or are no longer able to see the overarching and surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. We accumulate to ourselves things that hold no eternal value whatsoever. Eventually, we no longer want Christ. We just covet stuff. 
After a while, our spiritual life becomes so cluttered that it's like our garages. We can barely get the car in there anymore. We forfeit our spiritual gifts on the altar of self-affluence and materialism. We all together stop investing in each other. We start to see others as a burden instead of the opportunity to show Christ's love. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whatever you have done to these brethren in my name, even to the least of these, you have done to me. Just the other day before uh, Sunday service, I was speaking to one of our youth, and she had told me that she was able to lead one of her friends to Christ. Praise the Lord. And her friend was in the hospital from, you know, some wrong choices. She didn't really elaborate, but she told me that she was so nervous. She didn't know what to say. She didn't know what to do. She hadn't really done that before, but she stepped out in faith, and she did it. And then You could probably guess what she said next. She said, it was so amazing. I felt so much closer to God, and my faith was strengthened. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? The more we engage others for Jesus, the more we grow in our faith, right? Because it's not that he's faithless. We can be faithless, but even in our faithlessness, he shows himself faithful. All we have to do is step out. He's always been there. Investing in Christ is selling out from the world and investing what he invested in. His people, his church, obedience to the Father, it's investing in things of spiritual sustenance, not materialistic. I used to work with a guy years ago, and all he would ever talk about at work, and we worked from the afternoon until late evening, All he would ever talk about is how he spent hours and hours and hours in front of the TV playing video games. Oh, I beat this level. I did that. I gained that. I got this. Hours. I mean, until the daylight hours. And then this guy would come back to work talking about games, 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 all this stuff he invested time and effort into. I'm thinking, for what? You know, some people still do this. And I'm thinking, you're, you're married, you've got kids, and you're sitting in front of the games playing who knows what, wasting time, and you're getting no eternal value whatsoever. And I got to thinking about that. It's not just games, though, is it? It's television. For some of us, it's our phone. For some of us, it's social media, the new hot TV show. For me, sometimes it's work. You gotta fix that computer, you gotta do this, gotta do that. Before you know it, I come home from work and I'm sitting in the office. You guys are also probably familiar with this character, but he was a stockbroker who owned his own business uh, for many years, Bernie Madoff. For decades, he embezzled millions of dollars from his investors, millions. Eventually, he was caught, thank the Lord, and all the money was gone, and he had to give an account to not only his investors, but to the, to the law. These people lost all they had. Retirement's gone in the blink of an eye. Financial stability, gone. Who you invest in matters. But please also hear me. I'm not saying that we should not be concerned ourselves with financial stability, 
retirements, or taking care of ourselves and our family. That's not it at all. But we should be more concerned about our eternal security than the comforts this world has to offer because they're fleeting. We should be storing up treasure in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. I fear that if we only invest in the things of this world, that one day when it really matters, we're going to be spiritually bankrupt. Investing in Christ is investing your time, your energy, your finances to see his glorious gospel proclaimed, his people edified, and his church built. This means dedicating time for prayer, Bible reading and studying, giving to the local church, and this last one that's hard for most of us, I think, is pouring into others sacrificially. So who are you investing in? Christ? Or yourself? So first I would say that um, we can see from 34 through 35 that who you follow matters. Secondly, from 36 and 37, I think who you invest in matters. And then from 38, I would say that what you're ashamed of matters. And I'll just read that again. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Um, In Acts chapter 5, we see that Peter and the apostles are doing all these uh, amazing signs and healing, and and they're teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus, repentance, uh, uh, forgiveness of sins, and that sort of thing. And because of this, it lands them in jail and in front of a council, right? And they're almost torn to bits. Um, I think the scripture uh, was they were teaching and explaining their case in front of the council, and um, it says they were cut to the quick. (laughs) I was talking with my wife about this the other day, and if you're ever um, sharing the gospel or or teaching somebody or, or going through the scriptures and they go, oh, that cut me deep. Take off running, because you're about to get flogged. No. (laughs) She said not to do that joke. I'm sorry. Um, But anyway, so they're at this trial, and uh, Gamaliel, he's a Pharisee. He convinces the council uh, to free them, right? So what he does is he tells them, look, there's some guys that come before these guys. You know, they had a following. They died. Their following dispersed. There's like two other people. If this plot is of men, it will happen the same way. These guys will die and everything will go. Everything will be fine. If it's from God, there's nothing you can do. And if you try to stand in the way, you may be found going against God. So he convinces them, let them go, right? Let them go. And the council agrees, kind of. They flog them before they let them go, which means they beat them. And then they tell them and threaten their life not to teach in the name of Jesus anymore. So... And then what does the scripture tell us about how they uh, responded? It says, so they went on their way from the presence of the council. Here it is. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Worthy to suffer shame for his name. Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 5 verse 10 that blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul reminds us that indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What you're ashamed of matters. In chapter 7 of Romans, uh, Paul says, For what I'm doing I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. We should be repenting of sin and praying that God, through Jesus Christ and his power, would deliver us from the temptation. We should be sharing the gospel. I know it's tough, though. I know. I struggle, too. But this could be something as simple as just handing out tracts or cards and then striking up a conversation. And I think the worst thing that can happen is they'll say, no thanks. Maybe they tell you how crazy you are. God forbid, maybe they beat you like they did the apostles. But even if they do, we should be considered worthy to suffer shame for his sake. What you're ashamed of matters. Doing a lot of name dropping tonight, but um, these guys I felt were important to the, the illustration of the points I was trying to make. But uh, most of you are probably familiar with George Whitfield. George Whitfield was an 18th century, what they would call traveling evangelist. In fact, some people would say that um, he was the one that established traveling evangelism because although he was grown, or he born and raised across the pond, so to speak, he came to the American colonies in 1740 and traveled all through the American colonies preaching uh, to thousands. In fact, they, he did so much preaching that uh, they dubbed it the Great Awakening. And he always traveled. He went to other countries, locally. And he used very thematic and dramatic ways of preaching. That was actually what he was studying, I believe, before he was called to the ministry. And so that he used that when he was preaching. And he believed that all needed to experience a rebirth in Christ, irrespective of denomination. He was never ashamed to preach Christ and him crucified. He was met with some opposition, though. In fact, at one preaching engagement, he says, and I quote, I was honored, keep that in your mind, I was honored today with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cat thrown at me. Like the apostles, he was honored to be shamed for the sake of Christ. I fear sometimes we don't even allow ourselves to get past our thought life on what might happen if we share Christ with an unbeliever. We imagine all manner of insult or physical injury from somebody for whom starters we won't even speak to. What if they're offended, we say? What if they call me names? What if, what if? What you're ashamed of matters. So I would just simply say that are you ashamed of Jesus Christ and his gospel? This one I have to ask myself a lot at work. Do people know you're a Christian? Or would you be ashamed if they did? Like Paul says in Romans chapter 7, are we ashamed and hate the things that we're doing that we don't want to do? Are we ashamed of our sin? Or are we ashamed of the truth of the gospel?
In summary, I would just say that following the leader is not child's play. It is a matter of life and death. And who you follow matters. Who you invest in matters. And most definitely, what you're ashamed of matters. Christ went to the cross. The perfect son of God was born as a virgin, lived a perfect life, and went to the cross so that we would be free from the bondage of sin, so that we could have life. Follow him. Invest in him. And don't be ashamed of him or the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. There's nothing in this life worth having except for Christ. Nothing. That's all I got, so we're going to pray. Thank you. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, help us to be mindful of who we follow, what we find ourselves investing in, and what things we are ashamed of, or not ashamed of, for that matter. God, I thank you again for this opportunity. I thank you again for this body of believers that was here tonight. Lord, we pray that you would just clear our minds and hearts. Let us go out from this building uh, seeking to proclaim your great name uh, for your glory, for the edification of believers, for the salvation of the sinner, and for the exaltation of your Christ, Lord, our Lord and Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.